Hey, friends. How are you? I hope you're well. Uh, I gotta be honest with you guys, uh, I woke up feeling a little weird this morning. So uh, if I'm not my chipper self today, I'm not feeling my chipper self, and uh, I'm just gonna let you know I'm gonna keep my distance this morning. So if you wanna catch me between services, uh, you're not going to, but um, for your own sake. But I'm glad to be here. Good morning. Uh, it is uh, good to gather together. You've got me the next couple weeks. So uh, today uh, we're gonna start in just like a, a little two week situation where we're gonna be. Really tackling, uh, you know, I get, I get big ideas sometimes. So I, I thought, I'm going to try to tackle a couple abstract thoughts and see if we can ground those abstract thoughts in uh, what a vibrant, healthy faith looks like. So um, buckle up. <laughs> we're ready to go. Uh, and, I, you know, I think we could use a little abstraction every now and then. Uh, so that's what we're up to today. That's what we're up to next Sunday. So um, I think let's just get into it this morning. We're going to start with Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Some of you might be familiar with this verse. Uh, Ecclesiastes, Old Testament book. And it says this in chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Spring of 2008, I was uh, in my undergrad at Gordon College in Massachusetts, and spring break was coming up that year, and I didn't have anything to do. I, I didn't really want to go home for that week, but we had the week off, and uh, me and a couple friends kind of felt the same way. There were four of us, so we put our heads together and said, hey, what can we do? We've got a week off. Let's have an adventure. Uh, now, we weren't like the, the crazy partying type, but we were the go-have-an-adventure type. So uh, we sat down, and one of my friends, Tyler, he said, hey, my uh, grandparents have a house down in the Tampa Bay area. It's empty this week. We could go down there. And we said, yeah, let's go down to Tampa. It'll be warm. We'll escape this horrible New England spring. There's a pool, and we'll have a blast. So uh, we hopped in my uh, other friend, his rickety old minivan, which was ill-advised, but we got in the van anyway, and we drove from Boston down to Tampa to spend a week down there in the warm weather. And, you know, we made it miraculously. But after a couple days at the grandparents' house, uh, we, we were all really bored. So uh, we wanted something, but this wasn't quite it. So while we were there, we put our heads together again, and we were like, let's, let's do something. Let's have an adventure. Uh, it didn't help that one of my friends was reading On the Road by Jack Kerouac at the time, which really sparked uh, our adventuring. So we, we put our heads together. We said, hey, none of us have any money. We can't like, afford a hotel or anything like that. So wherever we go, we're going to sleep in the van. The van's got to make it home. All this. So uh, you know, we started getting out a map and pointing at places, and we said, well, what about New Orleans? And we're like, ah, no, that's too far. What about Miami? Ah, it's a little too loud, not quite our scene. And after bouncing around ideas for about an hour or so, we landed on Key West, Florida, a place none of us had ever been down, you know, the southern tip of Florida, out the Keys, string of islands, to the southernmost point in the United States, Key West, Florida. And we said, hey, let's go on an adventure there and uh, <laughs> see what happens. So we uh, hopped in the minivan, no plan, uh, we're just going to sleep in the van and, for a couple days and, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens. And we were looking about an eight-hour drive down to Key West from the Tampa Bay area. So we drive through the Everglades and stopped and saw some alligators. And we made it to Key Largo as the sun was setting. And uh, we drove out the Keys and it was getting dark fast. And, I, uh, and eventually we came to Seven Mile Bridge, which, uh, in case you're unfamiliar, is a bridge 
that is seven miles long, over uh, but connecting a couple of the keys. And it was dark. It was very dark when we were on Seven Mile Bridge. And there was no moon that night, I remember. It was a clear night. I could see the stars in the sky, and there weren't really any lights around, no city close by to, you know, give off uh, that light. So it was pure darkness. And I sat in the passenger, front passenger seat with the window down. I was tired. I was just looking out westward as we drove across Seven Mile Bridge into the darkness. And I had a moment there on Seven Mile Bridge that I can't explain other than that God, I think, revealed something to me in that moment. You know, the dark night sky and the dark ocean ran together at uh, the horizon there. There was no distinguishable difference between up and down. And all I could see was dark, and it was vast, and it was big and inescapable. And as I looked out into the dark, I had no point of reference for where Earth ended and where the heavens began. It was really a beautiful darkness. And as I was in the passenger seat beholding this beautiful darkness, that's really the first time I got a sense of eternity. And that I could never actually understand it. How big it all is and how big the God who made it all truly is. So I ask you, have you ever had a moment like that? where you found yourself so wrapped up in a moment or in the beauty of something that you can actually feel that God is with you or maybe that he's speaking to you? Have you ever had a moment like that? There's something, I think, about beautiful things and beautiful moments that God uses to speak to us if only we are able to listen. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, I think, comes to this conclusion. Uh, as he begins in chapter 1, he mentions that he's a teacher, he's the king of all Israel, many think it's King Solomon, and that he had set his mind to uh, study everything under the heavens, all wisdom, all craft, all knowledge, and as he processes his experience through the first couple chapters, he comes to this verse in chapter 3 that we read, verse 11, I'm going to read it again, where he writes, and he's talking about God, that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God's created everything, and he has made everything beautiful. And he has given us humans the ability to lift up our eyes and to see and to desire and long for eternity and something that's beyond just the things that surround us, and yet he says we we're not able to fully understand it. And it seems to me that in this verse, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, is making a connection, I think, between beautiful things and the longing in our heart for eternity. So today, this is kind of what I want to talk about. I want to talk about beauty and its place and its role in our faith. Now, this can be kind of a big philosophical discussion, and it, it, kind of, it will be a little bit for us today. But like I said, I want to try to ground this idea in a vibrant, healthy faith. So, uh, and a lot of things we're going to have to leave out, but I just want to start by defining the conversation a little bit, just so we don't get too lost. We're talking strictly today about uh, beauty that we, will say, we behold. Beauty that we, uh, we see, that we hear, that we read. You know, the Bible talks a lot about true beauty, which is more about our character and our holiness rather than in looks. That's a very different discussion. But today I want to focus on uh, beauty that we behold, beautiful things that we, that we see, that we read, that we hear, beauty that we behold. 
Let me make a statement that we will come back to as we go. One of the most delightful and sacred pursuits in life is beholding and appreciating the beauty that God's world has to offer. We'll come back to this as we go. And I think it's unfortunate that many of us in the Western evangelical Protestant church, we've kind of left behind the beauty of beauty as we, uh, in faith especially. You know, uh, pre-pandemic, Taylor and I, uh, December 2019, the before times, Taylor and I uh, took a, uh, an overnight trip to Montreal. We left our kids behind with uh, her folks and we uh, spent the night up in Montreal. And while we were up there, we visited the Notre Dame Basilica. Anyone familiar with uh, Basilica Notre Dame there? Yeah, Mario, there we go. Um, I mean, this is one of the most stunning and beautiful buildings I've ever been in. And those of you who have been in, I think, would agree. The colors are vibrant. There are statues and, and paintings and, and uh, little shrines. And the artistry is just, it's absolutely breathtaking. And it's really fun to visit. But I think most of us would say, let's leave it at a visit. Let's leave it there. Um, we're glad to visit. But that level of, we'll call it iconography, that's, you know, that's for the Catholics, that's for maybe the Orthodox Church and those guys. And uh, many of us in the Western Church have an inherent healthy fear, I think, that the paintings, the statues, the stained glass windows, that we could become so taken with those things that maybe we forget about God. And we focus only on the beauty of those created things. And I think this sort of fear and mindset has kept us from talking about beauty in the church. Uh, yeah, during the Reformation in the 1500s, as uh, the new Protestant church split with the Catholic church of its day, the reformers, they, they spoke out against uh, this, the art and the iconography of the church that they were splitting with for this sort of fear of, we'll call it idolatry, fear that people would care more about the art or the beautiful thing more than they would care about God. And it gave the, re- the reformers another reason to speak out against the church that they were leaving, the Catholic church. And as a new way of thinking developed in the fledgling Protestant uh, Reformed Church, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that the Bible is our only way to truly know God, the uh, church at large, the Protestant church, became skeptical of these sort of beautiful extra-biblical productions, art and poetry and uh, maybe works of fiction. There wasn't a lot of room for that stuff anymore, and the focus of the church became on uh, biblical preaching and evangelism and uh, even gospel-driven activism that spoke out against everything from drunkenness to slavery. And And so reflections on the nature of beauty and the use of art in worship were no longer valued by this newfound common man focused pragmatism of the church that lasted through the past few centuries and even up to today. And that's sort of the general tradition we live in now. We love the practical, and we should. Practical is good. We need that. But I do feel we've lost a little something along the way in the conversation. I think we've lost the truth that one of the most delightful and sacred pursuits in life is beholding and appreciating the beauty that God's world has to offer. I think beauty is sacred. So why do I say this? Three reasons I'm saying that today. Number one, God is beautiful. Here's Psalm 27, verse four. 
The psalmist writes, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. God is beautiful. And how often, though, do you think about God being beautiful? It's typically not the first attribute that comes to mind when we talk about him. Usually we talk about his love and his grace and his goodness and his mercy and all those really good things. And we don't often talk about the fact that God is beautiful. The Bible tells us that God is beautiful and that all the beauty in the universe comes from him because he is beautiful and he created everything. Another reason uh, I think that beholding and appreciating beauty is sacred is because the creation is beautiful. The author of Ecclesiastes says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. If you go back to the first chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, the story of God creating everything, and day by day he adds to his creation at the end of each day that he has worked in creating, the Bible says that God saw that it was good. And that Hebrew word we translate as good is a word that's, it's tov, is the Hebrew word. And uh, according to Jewish philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel, this word tov doesn't just mean good, but it also can mean beautiful and pleasant, pleasing. God created the world good and beautiful, and it indeed is beautiful. Beauty and all that we see around us is, it's by God, it's from God. And the creation, the beauty of it, reflects the beautiful creator. Summer of 2009, I spent in California. I didn't have any plans that summer. I, was, I go through periods of time where I don't have plans, of, of, apparently. So I, <laughs> I went to California uh, to take some classes at a school out there. And I had a buddy out there, so we, I stayed with him and uh, just to get ahead on my studies and graduate a little early. So, um, but I drove. I drove from where I grew up in Connecticut out to Los Angeles in my 1996 uh, Honda Civic. And again, another car that shouldn't have made it there and back, but it did, and uh, <laughs> I don't know, what is it with me? I don't know. But uh, we drove to Los Angeles, and I had a friend join me on the trip just to, to take the week to get out there. Uh, and I gotta say, if you've never experienced the, uh, the vast and varied landscape of this country that we live in, you gotta go do it. You gotta do it, you gotta drive somewhere especially get out west. Um, it, it's honestly breathtaking. There's a lot of things I could say, but I remember, I'll just share this. I remember driving on I-70 uh, through Denver up into the Rocky Mountains and then down through the Rocky Mountains through Grand Junction, Colorado into Utah. Okay. And uh, I remember it just a matter of a couple hours going from these mountainous fields and meadows with grass and green and wildlife, and little ponds and lakes and rivers, down into uh, the desert of eastern Utah, just like wasteland desert. And then I remember all of a sudden coming around this corner and seeing these, and I remember saying it to my friend at the time as we were driving, these rock formations that looked like God had just taken these big spears of rock and hurled them down into the earth. And, and uh, this world is so big. It's so wild and untamable and diverse and epic and awesome. And God made it. And I think the beauty of the creation reflects the beauty of the creator. 
on Monday, this last week, I was talking about this idea of beauty with our, our young adult group that meets on Monday nights. And um, one of the ladies in our group, Abby, she said something very simple but very profound. Uh, she said, you know, God didn't have to make the world beautiful, but he did. He did. He made the world beautiful. And written into every stone and every blade of grass, every tree, every wisp of cloud, every sunset, is the mark of the creator, beauty. To behold and appreciate beauty is to behold and appreciate the work of God because beauty is from him. It's by him. And I think it's sacred in that way. Third reason that I think this beauty is sacred is because God wants us to make beautiful things as well. You go to the book of Exodus, the Israelites, they're in the desert and they had something called the tabernacle. It was like a big tent. It's a temporary dwelling place for God before they built the temple. And uh, Exodus 35 says this about um, how God endowed the craftsmen and the artists who built the tabernacle. He says, uh, it says in verse 31 that uh, he, God, has filled him, the craftsman, with the spirit of God, wisdom, with understanding, knowledge, all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage all kinds of artistic crafts. Uh, He's filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen and weavers and all of them skilled workers and designers. It's a beautiful work that God called humans to do. And then if you go to chapters 6 and 7 of the book of 1 Kings, God lays out the design for his permanent temple that Solomon's going to build. And if you read there, you read about, again, craftsmen who were working with uh, cypress and olive wood and cedar. There's statues of angels and uh, pomegranates adorning the temple and trees and all of these uh, quarried stones. And it's all overlaid with gold and it's shiny and beautiful. It's a beautiful work that God has called humans to do. J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, I can't get through a sermon without talking about this guy, author of Lord of the Rings. He's a believer and a longtime professor of linguistics. He had a thought, maybe a theory we'll call it, on this creative call on humanity. Tolkien called humans sub-creators, sub-creators. Now, humans, we can't create stuff out of nothing, right? That's what God does, right? Let there be light, boom, light. We can't, we don't have that gift, (laughs) But we can rearrange the stuff to make more new, beautiful things, the stuff that God created. Whether it's a statue or uh, designing and erecting a building or a painting or even a fictional story, putting pen to paper, we humans are not only able, but somehow I think called by God to engage in this sub-creation process. Here's a quote from uh, Professor Tolkien about, uh, you know, kind of his work as a sub-creator of uh, writing a fictional story. He he, uh, said this, which I think is beautiful. He says, we have come from God, and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. 
Indeed, only by myth-making, only by becoming sub-creator and inventing stories, can man aspire to the state of perfection that he knew before the fall. Some of you are artists. Some of you are storytellers and musicians. In this room at North Ave and in homes across Vermont, wherever you're watching from, there are poets and painters and builders and craftsmen because in each of us, the creative image of God longs to live in pattern with the ultimate creator. So we subcreate in order to highlight the beauty we behold that God gave to us. Even, where, even though our subcreations are often flawed, maybe always flawed, we are drawn to make and participate in beauty. One of the most delightful and sacred pursuits in life is beholding and appreciating the beauty that God's world has to offer. Because God is beautiful. All beauty comes from him. And we are called by God to make beautiful things. And yet, I do still think the hesitation of the reformers is true. Because while beauty is from God, and by God, and for God, beauty is not God. And it's all too easy for us broken and small-minded humans to mistake beautiful created things for something more than they are. You know, whole religions have been founded on uh, this idea that beauty must be God. And that's just, it's just simply not true. It's from God, but it is not God. So while beauty, yes, I believe is sacred and does demand our attention, we have to be careful not to give what we find beautiful our supreme attention and love. Here's Deuteronomy 4.19, where God is warning his people in this. He says, when you look up at the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things. The Lord your God has a portion to all the nations under heaven. God indeed is beautiful, but beauty is not God. He has made beautiful things, and yes, they are worthy of our attention, but they are not worthy of our worship. God has given us beauty to show us something about himself as a signpost pointing to the beauty of the one who created. So uh, where does that leave us? How can we begin to ground this abstract idea of beauty in faith without uh, being enticed away from the one who created it? Again, I want to offer three thoughts on this sort of trying to ground an abstract idea and how it can enhance and relate to a vibrant, healthy faith. Let me offer three thoughts. Number one, I just say very simply, enjoy beautiful things. Enjoy them. There's a lot of beauty in the world, whether created by God and nature or sub-created by us, right? Music and literature and visual arts. Beauty is meant to be enjoyed in whatever form it comes to us in. It's pleasing. Remember, God did not have to make the world beautiful, but he did. <laughs> and he put us here among the beauty, and he called us to make beauty as well. So, friends, enjoy it. Uh, but, you know, don't be weird about it. Don't cross the lines into idolatry or inappropriateness, that sort of thing. But we are indeed meant to enjoy beauty. You know, our family, we, are, we love the water. 
Me, my wife, my two kids, we love the water. We lived on Cape Cod before we moved to Vermont. And thankfully, we live close to uh, what some would call a beach down on the shores of Lake Champlain. And uh, <laughs> in the summer, you can find us there at uh, Letty Beach at least a couple days a week. And uh, I do enjoy the beach. They're real beaches, oh, okay. I, I do enjoy the beach. But I, I especially love sitting there and looking out over Lake Champlain. Because yes, the water would be enough. But in the background, you have those mountains looming, those Adirondacks there over across the lake. And, and being at the beach and sitting and enjoying the scene, it's one of those times for me, one of maybe the only times in my day-to-day life that I can be just like fully present in that moment. Not thinking about my to-do list, not thinking about what I have to do later or what I did earlier that day. I can just sit and look put my phone away, my kids can go and take care of themselves and enjoy the beauty of the moment and what's in front of me, fully present there. Beholding beauty in that way does something for me. And I think to enjoy beauty is part of what it means to be human. When we behold something truly beautiful, something happens in our souls that, ah, it's a little hard to put into words sometimes. There's purpose and intention in the world because God made it the beautiful things in this world. And he made you with purpose and intention. So it makes sense that we feel something when we behold beautiful things. So don't be afraid to enjoy what's beautiful, as long as you don't worship it. Uh, Second thing I will offer as to how to ground this idea of beauty in our faith is to look beyond the beautiful things. Look beyond them. Right? Beauty deserves our attention, but it doesn't deserve our hearts. The beauty we see and maybe the beauty we create, it's a sign. It's a signpost pointing beyond itself to the source and author of all beauty. So when you behold something beautiful, stop, enjoy it, and then try to look beyond it. And that's up, that's up to us to do. To be in a place where we can allow our hearts and minds to look beyond the thing. So how do we do that? Let me uh, use two words to try to answer that question. How to look beyond the beautiful thing. Two words, awe and gratitude. To stand in awe of something is to be, uh, it's to be more than just speechless looking at something. To be in awe of a thing, I think, is to try and wrap our minds around it and uh, not be able to. As the author of Ecclesiastes says, in chapter 3, verse 11, that he, God has set eternity in the human heart. He's given us a longing and desire for that. Yet, he says, no one can fathom, no one can understand what God has done from beginning to end. And awe comes when we ponder those questions of how is it possible, how long, why, and we come up short in our answers. To be in awe of something is to see it in more than practical terms. So much of how we interact with the world is in, uh, in this practical way, right? How can I use it? Can I harvest it? Can I conquer it or climb it? Can I own it? To be in awe of something is to <laughs> see it in more than those practical terms and how a thing can serve us to not be able to answer those questions. And that gives us an opportunity to say, 
Something or someone even bigger than this set it in motion and must have done the work. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I mentioned earlier, Jewish philosopher, he writes in his book, God in Search of Man, these words. It's hard to find a way to an awareness of God. If the world is only power to us and we are all absorbed in a gold rush, then the only God we may come, up, uh, come upon is the golden calf. Nature as a toolbox is a world that does not point beyond itself. It is when nature is sensed as mystery and grandeur that it calls upon us to look beyond it. To be in awe, to sense the mystery and grandeur of something gives us an opportunity to look beyond it to the author of all beauty. Awe leads us to God. The second word I said I was going to use to um, try to ground how we look beyond beautiful things is the word gratitude. It's good to be grateful for things. Gratitude, by its very nature, acknowledges that something came to us from the outside, right? That's, uh, that's very basically, I think, what gratitude acknowledges. And when we behold something beautiful, in order to look beyond it, I just encourage you very simply, thank God for it. Thank God for it. Say it out loud. Use your words, as I would tell my kids. God, thank you for this. And acknowledge that it came to you from something beyond yourself. Gratitude is often the starting place for worship of God. Recognizing what he's done and being thankful that he's created and redeemed us, being grateful that we are surrounded by beauty in this world, that's something that can lead us in our brokenness to worship of him. I have another quote from uh, Thomas Merton, who is a monk, an author, and philosopher. He writes this about gratitude. To be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has given us. And he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. Every moment of existence is a grace, for it brings with it immense graces from him. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awakened to new wonder and to praise of the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. When we're grateful, we acknowledge the goodness of God in our experiences. So when we experience beauty, whatever form that comes to us in, gratitude and awe both help, it, help us to look beyond it to the author of all beauty. Uh, another one of the ladies in our young adult group, Kiara, we were talking about this. She, she said, <laughs> she put it like this. She said, beauty is the start of the conversation. It's the start of the conversation. It's a first step, a starting place. Something that points beyond itself to someone who is greater than it. It's like that moment I had on Seven Mile Bridge looking out into this beautiful, infinite darkness. Beautiful things point beyond themselves to the beautiful one who made it and can show us who he is and who we are in relation to him. Last way I think we can ground beauty 
in our faith is to create beautiful things and do so as an act of worship. I really believe God has called us to this work of subcreation, of uh, making beautiful things out of the beautiful things he has already made. Right, many of you, maybe all of us, have a creative spark. And maybe no one knows that but you. Maybe you write poems or prose. And you tinker on the piano when no one's home. You sketch in the margins of your notebook. Or you uh, paint beautiful landscapes and give them to gifts, give them as gifts to your friends. Maybe you play bass or guitar. You sing in the shower. You take photographs and post them on Instagram. Or maybe you sew together dresses for your granddaughter. You are a sub-creator. You are called to it, endowed with the gift, created in the image of God by God himself, not in that we look like him in the image, but we function like him. And part of that is our creativity to create beautiful things. You're a sub-creator. So do it, whatever it is, and do it as an act of worship from the overflow of your heart. Create beauty. Even if what you create isn't beautiful, it's beautiful. I uh, personally, I am 100% convinced that our sub-creations are beautiful precisely because they're imperfect. Because we're imperfect, right? I'm imperfect, you're imperfect, our lives are imperfect. What we create is not perfect. And when we create and we, we can show our imperfections, we can be honest and vulnerable and open up our hearts and our lives to show others that they're not alone in feeling imperfect and to touch something deep, deep in each other's souls. And in that, we can communicate joy and hope in our imperfection. I finished reading a book this last week called Everything Sad is Untrue. The author, Daniel Nayeri, he's a uh, Iranian refugee living in America now. He came as a kid. And in his book, he uh, talks about the Persian flaw. The Persian flaw. Uh, you're probably familiar with Persian rugs, right? These ornate, beautiful, vibrant uh, rugs. Yeah, colors and designs and all that. And the quality of these Persian rugs is uh, often determined by how many uh, threads and knots there are per square centimeter. So the higher the count that you can get into a, uh, you know, a square inch, square centimeter, the higher quality generally that rug is going to be. Uh, the Persian flaw is that every rug maker, somewhere on their rug, will intentionally leave one of those knots out. They leave a flaw in the rug as a reminder that we are not perfect and what we make is not perfect. And no matter how hard we try, our creations are imperfect because they come from imperfect creators. And that level of honesty, I think, is beautiful. In our creating, we have a chance to reach into the human experience and say, hey, I'm imperfect like you. 
but I'm trying. And we can tell the truth in that about the ultimate one, the ultimate good, perfect creator. So I'd say to you again, create, subcreate, and do it as an act of worship. Do it as a way to communicate truth and point to the author of all true beauty. You know, God didn't have to make the world beautiful, but he did. He didn't have to place eternity in our hearts, but he did. He didn't have to call us to this work of subcreating, but he did. Beholding and appreciating beauty is one of the most delightful and sacred pursuits in this life because beauty comes from God. He gave it to us. He gave it to us to enjoy, but he also gave it as something that points beyond itself to him. And when we work to create beauty as well, we can do so in worship to the God from whom all beauty was given. So, um, church, let's, let's work to reclaim this sacred pursuit, but not for its own sake, for the sake of God, for the sake of our relationship with him, the truly beautiful one. It's all from him and by him and for him anyway, and he is good and he is beautiful. Beauty is sacred. And I think if we can continue this conversation in our lives and in our church and our groups or wherever we are, we'll find that this sometimes left behind, sometimes abstract idea of beauty plays an important role in a vibrant and healthy faith. His beauty is from him, it's by him, it's for him. And everything we do to participate in that, if we do it with the right heart, looking beyond the beautiful thing, we do it for him as well. Uh, that's, that's it, church. Let's close in prayer. Would you stand with me? So God, we thank you for the beauty that we get to experience in this life. The beauty of the world we live in, the beauty of Vermont, which is, it's stunning. And as the seasons change and the leaves return and the flowers bloom, Help us to see you in all the beautiful things. That you are the one who created and set it in motion. That that flower doesn't exist for itself, it exists for you. And as we too do whatever form of sub-creating we do, whatever that looks like, would we remember you and would we do it for you? because you are the one who gave us everything anyway. It's all for you and from you and by you. So God, we just say thank you. Thank you for beauty. Thank you for this life we get to live. And would you reveal yourself to us more and more in the beautiful things in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you again next week. God bless.